0: Good morning again, and my name is Ryan, and one of the pastors here, I guess the lead pastor, but after tonight, uh, I'll be one of the pastors here, pastors on staff anyways. Um, again, glad you're with us. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you or your family, would love an opportunity to do so after the service. We are looking at the Psalms this summer, and some of that reason is because as summer is very transient, uh, so the Psalms, you can kind of come in and uh, pick up where you left off. They don't necessarily follow any major Uh, chronological themes, like a book will. So we're taking those. uh, We started with Psalm 1 back in June, and now we find ourselves in Psalm 6. Just one more note about where we're headed moving forward. After next week, we move into August. And uh, for August, we we ask the congregation to send us topics for what you'd like to hear. That's something we're going to try for the month of August. And I think those were printed in the bulletin at least one Sunday, so those have been made known. So in August, we'll have... um, uh, sermons on the topics of, of your choosing, I guess is the way they put it. So I think the first one will be on what is Presbyterianism, uh, which Jamie will lead us in. Then we'll look at what faith is. We'll look at uh, what heaven is, um, and then we'll look at uh, understanding government authority and how do we as Christians uh, in, interact with that So those were the top four that were chosen, and we're really looking forward to diving into those topics with you before we enter into the fall. So also, just in case you're wondering, um, these speakers here, what are they doing? And well, they're doing what speakers do, but I think our big speaker has been out, as being worked on. So if you were wondering why these are here or they're blocking your view, it's temporary, but it's a necessary fix for this Sunday. That's just if you were wondering about that. Um, If you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the Psalms. If you're using the the Pew Bible that's under your seat, page 449, we're going to read Psalm 6 here, and that's where we're going to be this morning. I'll read the entire thing here. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word found in the book of Psalms, Psalm 6. To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Shminnith, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Verse 8. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us, and we pray now that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we may see things and hear things, otherwise we could not that you would do this for your glory alone, we pray. Amen. Well, a couple weeks ago, um, our family took some vacation to go visit my family in Tennessee, and what's becoming, I think, part of our family tradition now as we go back to visit my family in Tennessee is a necessary stop in Dollywood. And you're going to get tired of probably hearing me talk about this, but it's awesome. And um, one of the things that Dollywood has that are actually surprising, surprisingly good, are, are roller coasters. And one of our family's favorite is a roller coaster called Blazing Fury. I mean, with a name like that, it's got to be good. Now, uh, the whole premise of Blazing Fury is that it's, you're kind of entering this town that's um, a western town, and it's uh, themed that uh, you're this fire truck thing and you're going to go put out a fire. That's it. And you kind of go around, and you see the scene, and the fire gets out of control, and then it's, you know, your job as the, on the roller coaster to put this thing out. The, the thing about this roller coaster is it's all inside. You, know, you don't see any of it. It's all in the dark. I, I would kind of call it a East Tennessee version of Disney's Space Mountain, if you're familiar with Space Mountain. That's That's putting it nicely. And whether you've experienced any type of roller coaster in general, but especially one in the dark, it's got an added uh, extra measure of "I don't like this." Um, there's a there's a vulnerability there actually, as you're running the rails, not being able to see anything around you. Um, the worst thing you could ever do if you're going to go take a trip to Disney World and ride Space Mountain is actually Google Space Mountain with the lights on you will never get on that roller coaster again. Because what you realize is that just inches above your head are all of these joints and rafters and, and everything that you're spinning through at 60 miles an hour. And, it, it, and this is, of course, all going through my mind as we're riding Blazing Fury, wondering, is this next turn going to be the turn that, that takes my head right off? Because I can't see anything in here. And we just wanna, you just want to bail. I, just, I, I don't know why I keep getting on these, but I do. Um, that's a little bit of the effects of physical darkness. And uh, spiritual darkness actually has some similarities there. Uh, primarily that when we enter into seasons of life where there is spiritual darkness, it is uncomfortable, and it actually requires a level of vulnerability within us that actually makes us not desire this space even more, that sends us running oftentimes. And that's exactly what David is experiencing here as we look at this psalm. There is a, a level of spiritual darkness that he is in, and it is, re, it is forcing him into places that he'd rather not be. Now, real quick, spiritual darkness, what does that mean? That's a very broad term. Um, this can mean a number of things. It, it can mean an actual depression that you uh, experience for a season, This can be the effects even of unconfessed sin or the effects of confessed sin that still seem to linger because you're not sure if God is actually for you. And remember, when we began the Psalms, the Psalms are always going to hit at these human themes. This is what life, the the human experience is like. And I would venture to say that that, that for the the most part, uh, if you've lived long enough, you've experienced seasons where, is God really here with me in the midst of this? Whatever, whatever that darkness may be, it could actually be depression. It could be a season of, of confession, but you're not sure because of that confession, if God has removed himself from you, he feels different or distant. We're not sure exactly what it is that David is confessing here. We're not sure exactly what he's gone through here. But he is in a season of experiencing the darkness of that distance. And it is uncomfortable. And it is something that the Bible, thankfully, in the psalm, gives us, though, direction for how to navigate through that. And that's what the psalm does. This psalm is one of six uh, penitent psalms, as, as, they, as people, are, or I should say theologians refer to them. Uh, psalm 51 might be the most familiar of the penitent psalms. And uh, as I said, though, it, being unclear, exactly what David is confessing. This psalm na- helps navigate David and us through these dark times. And the way that it does this, and what I want us to see more than anything, is that As we travel this psalm, where David David lands, where we land, as we find relief and confidence again in the Lord, regardless of what we're experiencing, is that the God of the Bible is always for you. He is always for you, no matter what your circumstances say. For those in Christ this morning, you have that truth with you for for the rest of your life, regardless of what is going on around you. And this is Um, this is what we'll see in this psalm. How does it do this? Uh, Three things that we'll look at. Uh, First, as we look at this psalm, we want to see the grounds of David's appeal to God in this psalm. So the grounds of David's appeal to God in this psalm. We want to see then where grace leads David in this psalm. And we want to see how grace leads David in this psalm as he experiences the darkness, the spiritual darkness, uh, because of his circumstances. So let's look at the first one here, the grounds for David's appeal to God. The grounds for David's appeal, which by appeal, his confession, all of his crying out, everything that this psalm has, I mean, there's a little bit of a lament here. There's a lot of things. But because we're going to treat it as a penitent psalm, the grounds for his appeal to God are not his merit. They're not his kingship even. God, it, is, it is instead God's grace. God's grace. Look at verse 1 and 2 with me. O Lord, rebuke me, not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be what? Gracious to me. That's his appeal. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for what I am languishing. And then in verse 4, he doubles down on it with the, the word that we've become familiar with after studying the life of David, Hesed, which is steadfast love, turn, or actually return, O Lord, deliver my life, save me for the sake of what? Your steadfast love. This is the, the grounds for David's appeal to God. It is grace. Now, what does that mean for David in this psalm? It means that David is asking God to not give him what his sin truly deserves, Look back at verse one. 1, oh O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, right? Anger, wrath, these are, these are the words that, that would be used in the Old Testament to describe sin's punishment. Justice, really, for our sin. And David is simply saying, don't do that to me, though I deserve it. David is clearly asking God to be gentle with him. He is not saying, don't rebuke me or don't discipline me. He is asking God to not give him, in in one sense, his just deserts for whatever sin he has committed. In other words, don't give me what my sin requires, which is your wrath. Instead, be gracious to me. Save me. Not on accord of what I have done, but on accord of your steadfast love, your grace. This is the grounds of his appeal. It's the starting place for David's confession and for ours as well. But that's a little abstract. What what does that actually look like? What does it actually look like, right? In other words, if grace is the grounds, what does that say about who I'm going to? Because that's really the... That's really the catch, right? Do I believe, though I, the, the, the grace is the grounds for my appeal to God, do I believe that I'm going to a gracious God? And, and to help illustrate this and remind us of who it is we're actually going to, I want, us, I want to bring back a, a parable in Luke 15 that many of you all are familiar with. It's called the parable of, of the prodigal son. And just a summary of this parable um, it, it's really about the older son. There are two sons, and, but we're familiar with the younger son. And what happens to the younger son? He asks his dad for his inheritance, which, which is to say, you're dead to me, because that's the only way you would get the inheritance, right? It's, I, I no longer want to be a part of this family, which in, in this culture would be the worst thing that you could do. But not only ask for that, he, ta- he gets it and he leaves and he goes and he squanders this inheritance and after rolling around in the mud literally he realizes i could probably have better living conditions as one of my father's servants doesn't even consider doesn't even consider being reinstated as a son but thinks i could just i could go back and be his hired hand and i would have food And had to have shelter. Okay? That's the premise of the beginning of this parable. And so, what begins to happen? Well, the son comes home. And uh, and, and as we know, as he's coming home, the father sees him from a distance, and he runs to meet him. And he takes off his robe, takes off his sandals, calls the servants to go get the fatted calf so we can have a party and celebrate. Because his son is home. Now, Tim Keller wrote an entire book on this parable titled Prodigal God. And if you haven't read it, um, you should. Because prodigal means, as Keller defines it, recklessly spendthrift. Recklessly spendthrift. And we call this parable the, the, the prodigal son because we think it's actually the son who has been what? Recklessly spendthrift. And he has. He's blown his entire inheritance. He has wave goodbye to his family. This is the definition of r- reckless living. We talk about uh, perhaps maybe even our children, the, one, the, the wayward son, right? The prodigal son has returned. The prodigal daughter has returned, right? We use these, this terminology to actually talk about those children of ours perhaps that leave the faith and come back. But what Keller is saying, and what I believe is more true about the, the, the point of the parable, is that it's not the son who is prodigal here. It's the father. He is the reckless one, right? He is reckless in the way that he receives his son back. He is reckless in the way that he throws the party for him, that he gives him the robe and the ring, and reckless in the way he reinstates him. Because this means now that he is not just a servant, he's a son again. Which by definition means that he now has another portion of the inheritance. He gets two inheritances. And what my kids say that is, is unfair, And this, of course, is why the older brother, which is what the parable is directed towards, has a problem with. Won't go there this morning. But do you see his point? It is God who is recklessly spendthrift. And that's grace, friends. it's the same god that david is making his appeal to and the same is true for you this morning that's what he's like when 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 you leave here and think about what it, what it looks like for me to make an appeal to God, confessing sin, right, crying out to him because of the darkness that you find yourselves in, wondering if he's even there. I want you to have this image that you're not crying out to somebody who's going to say something like, okay, maybe this time, but this is it. Isn't that what we're waiting for, for the Father to say in Luke 15, by the way, which he doesn't say, oh, just this once, son, you can return, but after this, this is it. That's what we're waiting for, and it doesn't happen. That's what grace is. That is what grace is. This is who you go to. This is is who your appeal is made to. One little uh, overlooked detail, that just to drive home this point before we move on. The way Luke records this, if you go back and read it, the son has written his, here's what I'm going to say to my dad, I've sinned against you, and I've sinned against heaven, and I've done these things, and if you just make me a servant, that'll be fine. And, and you can kind of even imagine, I'll, I'll take some liberty here, that as he's walking back to his father's home, rehearsing, rehearsing the story, got to get this right, got to get this out, this is the only chance I have that as Luke records him going into his spiel in verse 20, it's as if the father cuts him off. He doesn't even get to finish it. This is who he's going to. Now, is that who you think you are confessing to or crying out to as a Christian in your life? Because it is. John Calvin has this this to say about this very text referring to Luke 15, the parable. It says, "...a son had estranged himself from his father, had wasted his substance, had grievously offended against him in every way. But the father embraces him with open arms, and does not wait for him to ask for pardon, but anticipates him, recognizes him, willingly runs to him, comforts him, receives him into favor. And as I'm, I'm going to say this again towards the end of the sermon to make sure it gets its rounds, this does not mean we do not need to confess sin. This doesn't even mean that we need to just think haphazardly about our sin and the ways that it offends a holy God and the way that it hurts others and hurts ourselves. That is cheap grace. But when David appeals to God's grace here, his steadfast love, this is what it looks like. It's a God who is recklessly spendthrift with his love. And whether you're comfortable with that or not this morning, you and I experience the same thing every time we go to him. And whether you're hearing that for the first time this morning or for the thousandth time, and, it, and maybe, I, maybe I believe it, maybe I don't, I don't know. I, I personally don't think we ever get grace. We never learn it and move on. We spend our entire lives wondering if what I just said is true. In some shape or form, there are extra measures of it where there are days where it's like, wow, okay. And it typically follows with tears, but I don't, think we, I don't think we think this is okay. If any of my kids did this to me and came home, and I responded in this way, or if you responded in this way, I might have questions as to whether or not that was actually appropriate. And everything right, requires its situational specificity. But we're not comfortable with this level of recklessly spendthrift grace. But friends, it's actually all you have. This is the grounds of your appeal, and this is where David starts. Now, is that it, right? Is grace then the magic word that we utter, or that we appeal to in order for God to give us what we want, or to perhaps change our circumstances, or to make us feel better about ourselves, right? What's the purpose of this appeal, uh, of this grace? And there are many purposes, but there's one that I, that I think comes through the most in this psalm and the purpose is to drive you to the bosom of the Father. It's intimacy. It's deeper relationship with him. The purpose of appealing to God's grace for David here is where it ultimately leads him, which is is closer to the Father. It's deeper understanding, and it's deeper trust, which is a definition of intimacy. One of the things that stood out to me about this psalm, and maybe it caught your ear, too. I don't know. As you read this, it's such a short psalm, but it is full of descriptive language of how David feels. It's almost too much. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly tr- troubled. Verse 5, In death there is no remembrance of you, and she we, uh, who will give you praise? And I know that just because I'm Sure, that is the verse that everybody's like, what does that mean? Just briefly, David is saying that in this life here, right, this is where mankind worships you. This is where mankind gives you praise, and that's a good thing. Death would be the end of that here, okay? Now, we would say, well, well, yeah, you go on to be in heaven with him. That's where we're going to have all kinds of worship, and it's going to be great. Yes, David would agree, But he's actually pointing out how valuable this life is, too, to worship him. And actually, this is the arena, too, where we get to see and experience God's miraculous works. The word remember in the Old Testament is synonymous with the word act. For God to remember, is for God to act. And David is saying, don't let that go to an end here. Let your name be known, be made great by your actions. Right, in Sheol, like, this is where this goes away. But it, again, it's vulnerable. Verses six to seven: I am weary with my moaning every night. I flood my bed with tears. Who would tell somebody in here that this is what they did last night? Maybe you would. My, I drenched my couch with weeping. <laughs> my eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of my foes. Right. Why is David being this descriptive, this honest? Because this, friends, is where grace leads you. Towards intimacy with God, closeness with God, deeper trust, deeper knowing. Psalm 3, if you recall, a psalm of lament, an individual lament, but we can also use that corporately. We talked about how David first saw, like here's what he saw as sort of this pathway for for lamenting. Name it. Here's what it is. My foes are coming at me. It's external. But here, everything that he is expressing is internal, which requires an extra measure of vulnerability to say, I'm going to cry out to the Lord and be as descriptive as possible as not just what I'm experiencing, but here's what's going on up here. Which, by the way, is a wonderful remedy or or, or plan, I should say, for repentance. Bring the Lord into your sin. Don't act as though he doesn't know that it's there. And you know what that requires? Vulnerability. Because it breeds intimacy. Because you're moving further in, further deeper trust, deeper knowing of who this Father is. And grace, friends purpose of it, at least here, one of the purposes, is to do that. If we just go back to Luke 15 again, what the son experiences from the father in, in that parable is what? You love me in spite of my failures. That's what it says. You love me in spite of my failures. If that is the context or the grounds for your relationship with God, with anyone really, which is steadfast love, Would it not, at the very least, lead you to being more honest, more vulnerable, more trusting? And we would say it was. That's intimacy, right? This is a healthy, good marriage, a healthy, good friendship. So having appealed then, notice the flow. On the grounds of God's grace, grace now leads David. It doesn't leave him there. It leads David into what deeper relationship with God. And what that looks like is the descriptive nature of David's crying out. Therefore, grace isn't the magic word, after all, that gets God to give David what he wants, which is either some relief from the darkness or a change of circumstances. Grace here is what leads him to deeper trust, deeper knowing. And friends, that is where David ultimately finds relief. Make no mistake about it. You will not find relief in changed circumstances. Maybe for a brief time. Your relief— your rest, should I say, is always, always in a deeper, more intimate relationship with your Savior, one that gives you the freedom to be as descriptive in crying out as David is here. I've said this before, our hearts do not change for Tyrants. Like if God is a tyrant to you, you will never change for him. Your behavior might change, but you're, you will never give your heart to him. If grace then is not the grounds for your appeal, for our appeal to God, if it's not the context for your relationship with him, then there will always be a guardedness to your approach to him, a question of is, is he really there? Is he really for me, as we'll see in the next point? Maybe this time when I confess, he'll say, okay, but this is it, Ryan. These are the head games. And as we'll see later in Ephesians, these are the arrows that Satan shoots at you. So how are you going to defend against that? Well, you're going to stand in Christ. You're going to listen to what Christ says about you. That's Ephesians. But if grace is the grounds, friends, and it is, it is, it is, you have no excuse to not trust him, to not be vulnerable and you're crying out, to not see intimacy as the place that grace what leads us, and where we ultimately find the healing and relief that we are looking for. Whether our circumstances change or not, there is so much I want to say here about this topic, especially about intimacy. Um, and, and, but you've heard it say, "Grace meets us where we are, but but grace isn't, or grace doesn't leave us where we are." And that's an important distinction. And I said it in the first point: it is not that would be cheap grace just to say you're fine the way you are; you don't have to change. So again, reiterating this point, but this is one of the places it leads us: leads us into deeper intimacy with. Lastly, then how does grace lead David here in this psalm? Um, Grace leads David in this psalm by reminding David of his status before him, which for David is his kingship. And what this tells David in this time of despair is that God is for him. I said earlier, you know, it's hard to tell, like, is is David uh, dealing with confession? Is he already confessed, but he's still wondering if God is distant from him because of his sin? All of that, though, would lead him to wonder, is God here? Is he for me? And the way that he has brought back to confidence in this is by remembering his status, his anointed status before God as king. Look at verse 8 to 10. These verses come out of nowhere. It is a hard right turn from the rest of the psalm. And if you read any of the commentaries, they're like, where did this come from? (laughs) You know, why why all of a sudden is there relief, right? David is crying out to God in one moment, then in another, his confidence has been restored. It's a bit startling. And and first, in case I forget, it's, it's always good to be reminded that the psalms do not express time. So we are not to think, okay, well, if I just go from verse 1 all the way down to verse 7, and then by the time I get there, then my problems will be solved. I'll, be, I'll have this confidence again. I'll be restored. Um, maybe. And I'm sure that all of us have experiences, and this is, I want to say this, I want to be very clear about this. Yes, the Lord absolutely, immediately grants us relief at times. No doubt. I've experienced that. I'm sure you have too. At the same time, Sometimes that relief, sometimes getting to verse 8 takes months, years. So it's not an either or, friends, it's a both and. And it's important for us to remember that as we are sensitive with one another, as we walk with them uh, through whatever they are going through. But that's just a note there about time. When he gets to verse 8, we don't know how much time has passed. We don't know, uh, you know, what has taken place in David's life to lead him to this. But what we can deduce is how this happened. And it's by David being reminded of his status before God, which in this context is God's anointed. The words of David in verse 8 to 10, right, they're not common words to be spoken by any normal Jew. They are kingly words, okay? The Lord has met David And this has led David to assuming his role as king. Depart from me is an authoritative language, right? And workers of evil, right, are all those that the king promised to protect his people from. And so what you see is David taking back up the vows that he gave as king. Finding his confidence looks like coming back then to who God says that he is, which is God's anointed, assuming that role as king. And there is nothing that is going to remind David more of whether or not God is for him or against him than falling back on his status as king, as God's anointed. In a similar psalm uh, of David, Psalm 56, when the Philistines sees David in Gath, he writes this, You, Lord, have kept count of my tossings or wanderings, my tears in your bottle. I love that line. Are they not in your book, though? When my enemies will turn back, or excuse me, then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, though, that God is for me. Confidence restored then is what follows, not sit, not circumstances change. When grace leads David into deeper relationship, right, intimacy with God, not further away from him, it has the natural effect then of reminding David of his status before God, who he is in the Lord, and that in return tells David that God is for him no matter what he is experiencing. To go back to Luke 15 again, is it not the closer the Father draws to the Son to the final embrace where he knows more than anything that his Father is for him? Of course it is. And the same is true here in this Psalm. And the same is true for you this morning. But what is your status? You're not kings. In this sense, that David is, right? This is what, what is your status? Where do you go to find that? You go to Christ. And what did we read earlier in our, our, in our pardoning um, uh, assurance of forgiveness after our confession of sin, Galatians 4? You are what because of him? You are sons and daughters. That's your status. You are heirs of the king. That's your status. And so where David falls back, right, on his uh, status of being anointed, where, where, where this leads us in our vulnerability of crying out, of drawing closer to God, we are reminded of what? Who he says we are. And if you want confidence in these dark spaces, if you want to know that God is for you, you are to look no further than Jesus. And what his death has accomplished for you. And I wish that I could say this today and that you and that I, we would leave here and never forget this. <laughs> but that's not true. So we got to come back and hear it again, and hear it again, and hear it again. This is how this psalm leads David. This is how the psalm leads us. We go from appealing to God's grace to where grace leads us into a deeper relationship with him to, to being reminded of our status in Christ, which says, if anything, that he is for us. So just a couple questions for application. Where do you struggle the most this morning in relationship to those three things? Where do you struggle the most this morning in relationship to those three things? Is, is it believing that grace is really the grounds for your appeal? In other words, do you find it hard to even go to the Lord at times because you think, I've got to clean this up first? I've got to get right. Or is there an arrow being sent at you that, that says, There's no way he will receive you this time? And if it helps, come back to Luke 15. Is it where grace leads you? Is this this a place of struggle for you this morning? Intimacy with the Father. Deeper trust, deeper knowing. Is it getting your arms around the fact that God truly desires the most intimate relationships with you? The gospel is relational, guys. And what, what this means in plain speak is, is, is to tell yourself or remind yourself that, that God doesn't just love you because a parent has to love you. My kids tell me that already. But that actually recognizing that he likes you, that's very different. It's very different. This psalm would lead us to say that's true. Or, lastly, is it how grace leads you? Is it reminding you over and over that God is for you because of your status before Him as sons and daughters? Is is, is that the hard thing to really believe this morning? To look at that table and trust that it truly is finished. That's what that means that your heirs to the kingdom is, is final for those who are in Christ? Or do you just feel like God tolerates me? Here's the deal. You're going to stand before Christ one day. Speaking to the Christians in the room. You're going to stand before Christ one day. And you're going to see his wounds. You're going to know his favor upon you. You're going to know the intimacy and deep relationship that he desires with you, that he likes you. You're going to know without a doubt that he is for you. Perhaps maybe one of the things I'm looking forward to the most this psalm asks us to live in that moment. And to do that now, it is asking us to bring what is true what is true in the future and to bring it into the present. How would that change things for you today? To live in the reality that Scripture reminds us of over and over and over, that God is for you no matter how dark the darkness gets, no matter how deep that valley is, and I would also add, no matter how wonderful the sun is shining outside, nothing is better than drawing closer to him. Let me leave it there for this morning. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm, and we thank you for the transparency that we have of David's life, I mean, the model of what it is for us to navigate, whether it's spiritual darkness, times of feeling God's distance from us, times of wondering, will He return? Will He deliver us? Is He with me? Is He for me? And the final word to all of those questions is Jesus. The answer is yes. Yes, yes, would we draw close to him today and in those times of of, of deep darkness that we might experience to come, knowing that nothing, nothing is going to separate the reality of who you call us in Christ, sons and daughters of the true King. Go with us now, we pray, amen.